I've had 10 interviews with people like Michael Seibel and Peter Boyce and Emmett Shear and Kevin Ryan and all these big entrepreneurs. And what I do to stay in touch with them is just recently I would send them an email follow up and be like, hey, Peter, it's been, you know, four months since I interviewed you. Crazy how time flies. Here's an update on my end of what I've been doing. A few bullet points. I've been doing this on Twitter, been doing, you know, meeting these cool people. We've had these interviewees recently and just giving them an update. It's super low touch because they don't even have to respond if they don't want to, or they can just read it and be like, oh, cool. It's good to hear from Chris. But that, that's what I do in terms of staying in touch with people that are higher profile like him. Actually, there's a quick story related to that. So I interviewed Kevin Ryan for our last speaker guest. He's like a legend. They call him like the godfather of New York City tech. Awesome guy, founded MongoDB, Business Insider, and all these companies. And when he, it came to networking, I asked him a similar question. I was like, kind of, what do you think about building a network? And the lesson he said was, it's more about strengthening your existing network than finding all these new connections. Meaning stick with people that you've worked with or people that you've talked to and make sure you're constantly checking in with them every six months or so. So not constant, but every six months or so with here's an update. So I took that idea from him. And I think that's important because if you don't talk to someone for two years and then when you need something, you're like, hey, just out of the blue, haven't talked to you in two years. That's kind of ridiculous. And it's really, you don't have that relationship with them anymore. But if you're constantly, you know, updating them and and curious to hear about what's going on with them, it becomes more of a natural relationship. I want to start with you working with Sean Puri, because that's how I got to know you. I saw one of your tweet threads and then I checked your profile and I saw, oh, you're working with Sean. And then that's how I sort of started following you in the beginning. Yes, that's a fun one. Okay, so I first uh, knew about Sean when I heard him on a podcast back in June 2020. Uh, So this is almost a year ago. And I was like, oh, this guy's awesome. He's dope. He's definitely done some really cool stuff. And he thinks in a very frameworks-oriented way. He's a really smart guy. So I wrote up a tweet thread on him a while ago. This is June. And it got five likes. So it definitely didn't go viral by, by any stretch. But he DM'd me and said, oh, this is cool. Thanks for writing this about me kind of thing. And that started the first time that I got on his radar, but he, we really didn't know who each other were. We were trying to just figure it out, but he had about 15, 20,000 followers at that time. And then fast forward a few months later, I interviewed Emmett Shear, the CEO of Twitch, where Sean actually works. And I'd asked him, Hey, I'm interviewing Emmett. Do you have any questions you would ask him? Uh, so I, so he gave me a question, which was awesome, which I asked in the interview. And then from there, I kind of had stayed on his radar a little bit. But really what happened was Sam Parr put out a funny tweet, his co-host, Sam Parr, his co-host for My First Million, he put out a funny tweet and said, how the heck did Sean go from 30K to 100,000 followers in 60 days? Can someone tell me how he did this? And I literally just replied right away, I'll write a thread on this and typed out a thread in an hour of his five frameworks or principles for how he did it. And it was funny. I replied and said, oh, I got, I wrote one. And Sean saw that and really liked it and said, Hey, do you want to work for me? And that kind of started our relationship. So we jumped on a phone call. He basically kind of set the stage of what I'd be doing, which is basically researching different content ideas for newsletters or email newsletters or tweet thread ideas, and then helping him do researching and drafting and that kind of stuff. So that that was how the whole thing started. So it was based off purely off Twitter. Right. Yeah. And I have been a subscriber of his newsletter for a while and recently he shares, I think it's five gems and those are three threads. So what is it that you're looking for when you are thinking of these are the five three threads that we'll be sharing with the audience among 
say a hundred good ones this week? Yeah. So we have this Slack channel. It's called Twitter Ammo, uh, which is basically the best tweets that we see when we're when we're scrolling around. So the way Sean is very interesting in his approach is he thinks like your job is primarily to dig up cool stuff by being very curious. So your time spent on Twitter scrolling and looking at interesting things or reading articles or on Reddit, that's good time and productive time because you're finding the cool stuff on the internet. So what we do is anytime I see a cool tweet, I'll put it into Twitter ammo. Sean will put it into into Twitter ammo. um, And and Sean's right-hand man, Ben, will put some stuff in there. And the three of us kind of crowdsource the most interesting things we've seen for the week. And then from there, I'll load it up into our email software and then he'll give it a check and, and we'll send it out. Interesting. And is Twitter the only place where you're looking for ideas for his content? Or are you sort of Googling things, looking at Wikipedia articles or Substacks or YouTube videos? Yeah, I see Twitter is almost a top of funnel. So from Twitter, you can see, okay, Pomp links to an interesting article he read. Let me go check that out. Or Patrick O'Shaughnessy from Invest Like the Best. He'll be like, oh, here's my latest podcast with Josh Buckley, the CEO of Product Hunt, he had on last week. That allows me to go down a rabbit hole, or I'll check out like a, a good friend of mine from Twitter, Dickie Bush, who I think you've had on this podcast. Yeah. He has a great five best links of the week. So I'll take those and then go down a rabbit hole. So I think most of it's Twitter, but I also subscribe to a bunch of newsletters, which feed me good content that I can kind of go down a rabbit hole and jump off of. And I guess this is a common thing that I've seen with everybody who has worked with Hustle or with Sean or with Sampar is that they are really good at writing great Twitter threads and sharing great stories. So is it something that you take tips tips from people who work at Hustle or is it the other way around that you are already good at it and then you get hired by Sean or Sam? So, okay. So I'd say it's a little bit of both, but I definitely wasn't great before Sean hired me. I would say I was decent. I was writing threads for a while but I was still, I'd say, a little stiff and not as conversational um, and as interesting. But I think the key question that anyone listening to this can ask, what does an A plus look like? So asking Sean, what is, the, what is an A plus? What should I strive to be? And that gives you an, a model or an example of what kind of content you should be consuming and who you should be role modeling off of. Because it's really hard to know. You have this idea in your head what is good, but there's a whole new level when you get taught. So when, when I started with Sean, quick story, I said, hey, what's an A-plus look like? And he said, Trung. So Trung Fan works for The Hustle. He's at Trung T Fan on Twitter. And he puts out really interesting, funny content and memes and that kind of stuff. And he said, try to just study Trung. So I hit up Trung in the DMs and I said, hey, I'm working for Sean. I'm trying to like study and figure out what you do. So I shared him a Google Doc with all these questions I had of where are your sources, what, it, what content are you consuming? And it was helpful for me to just get a feel for how the best do it and then try to reverse engineer for me. And then to the other point about just like thread writing in general, I think studying people who do it really well is the best way. For me before, I would kind of just write things and wasn't totally sure because when you have a lower follower count, you don't get a lot of feedback in terms of likes and comments. So what I do is I would just literally read Neville Medora, the copywriter. He has an email newsletter that's really good. I would read Sean's old stuff. I would read Sahil Blooms. I would read Julian, Greg Eisenberg, and I would just study all of their tweet threads. And that gave me a feel and that allowed my own voice to kind of go through after already studying the best. And you have some very interesting ideas about writing good tweet threads. So could you go one by one with 
writing a headline, formatting the schedule that you follow to write these threads or the system that you have for those? Yeah. So in terms of Twitter content, my typical schedule is on a Saturday, I'll spend two hours or so writing and scheduling out two to three tweets per day for the whole week. So for those, the way I think about it is those are just nuggets of information that my audience can be like, oh, that builds trust. And that's some sort of interesting thing that they didn't know about or they didn't heard before. Because with tweets, normally, you don't really gain that many followers from it. You shouldn't use just regular tweets. I want to increase my following. That's not the best way to do it. It's, it's better for nuggets to build trust. The second thing about the Twitter threads. So I write two tweets, tweet threads per week. And for me, I have a notion document where I capture all of my different ideas that I'm coming through, coming across for the week. And the way I do that is I'll either be checking out those newsletters. I'll be watching YouTube videos. I'll be like, Oh, this could be a potentially good idea. I'll be studying other people's old tweet threads. Oh yeah. What's a contrarian point that I can take from that. And then, so it's two, yeah. So it's two tweet threads per week, two to three tweets per day. And that's kind of the general schedule. Mm. And how do you, Start, when you're writing a tweet thread, what are you looking for in terms of how you structure the headline or how you structure the entire tweet thread? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I, I think, so Sean gave me this advice. He said, you should spend 50% of your time on the headline for a tweet thread, which is crazy. If you think about it, you could spend, you know, have 10 tweets in there and you're spending that much time on the headline. The logic and rationale for that is that no one's going to read past it if you don't give them a great catchy headline. So the way I think about structuring those for me personally is it's some sort of social proof that you want. The ones that have done best for me have some sort of social proof at the top. So for me, it's, I just finished 365 days of reading. Here are five things I learned that you can use to build any habit. I just interviewed five founders of billion dollar startups. Here's what I learned. So it's a social proof. And then here's something you can learn and, and improve yourself. And I think that's the best way because people want to see credibility because I haven't built a billion dollar company, right? I haven't built this huge business that I've all these experiences. So I have to leverage what I do have and to be the sort of social proof that you can use. And something that you said in our last conversation was those three, you try to write these threads where the lessons are actionable more than stories. So do you have any thoughts on why people should try to go for actionable tips rather than telling this lengthy story of how something happened? Yeah. So I think you can do both. There's people like Sahil Bloom have written awesome threads that are great stories about different amazing business figures or different business stories that have happened. And Trung does some cool stories as well. So I think you can do both. Uh, The reason why I try to stick towards more actionable ones is it's just the way I've been thinking lately. I have these actionable ideas that I think people can take. Where I just did one recently on gratitude journaling that I'd experienced from. I I have ones on habit building. Uh, I have ones on building a network. So just for me, the recently it's been actionable, but I still think stories can be, can be a good thing. Mm. And what were your takeaways from the answers that Trung gave with the document that you had sent him? It was kind of funny. So Sean mentioned this on the My First Million pod about, you know, that I'd hit up Trung and it's kind of like asking Michael Jordan how he jumps so high is the analogy. It's hard to explain it from what he does very innately and very naturally. So I think there wasn't a ton of, here's exactly how you write a tweet thread. Here's what I do. But he did tell me a few things, a few sources that he looks to. One example was Polina Marinova Pompliano's, the profile was something he said, hey, there's a bunch of good business stories and profiles of people in there. 
Another one was Patrick O'Shaughnessy's season best like the best. So he does have source of content that he's that he's looking at and he can say, oh, here's a nugget. I can write a thread about this. In terms of all the memes that he finds, he finds a lot of them from Reddit. I think that's pretty common. And then he'll make his own in a meme engine, I think it's called. Yeah, his memes are really funny. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's awesome with that. Yeah. And I want to come back to networking because you're in college. And when I was in college, I never thought that, and this was three years back, three years back. So when I was in college, I never thought that I could reach out to people like Sean or Patrick or Paulina, because in my head, I was like, what do I have to give to them? But now that I've met you and Dickie and Sid and all these people through the podcast, I know that it's possible. And I know the process of how you do it. So how did you reach out to all these people that you have been in contact with when you were in college? And how do you think about this, this mental barrier of what can I give if I haven't paid a billion dollar company or if I don't have a huge media brand? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So I've thought a lot about this one because it definitely everyone feel, fear, feels that imposter syndrome of, hey, what can I give someone like Sean or someone more successful when I'm just a college kid? I, I totally have felt that a ton. And the way I get around that question is I basically think about specificity. No one likes a question. And this is the worst question in the world. You DM someone and say, hey, can you mentor me? Never ask that. That that's step number one. It's more like when I try to get on a call. Um, with I got on a call recently with Craig Clemens, who's an awesome copywriter. He's the founder of, founder of Golden Hippo. And I said I'd asked him for specific advice about the headline of a thread that I'd written many months ago, and said, "Hey, with your copywriting experience, any kind of tips there?" And he could have totally ignored it. That would have been totally fine. No skin off his back. But he gave me an idea, and and that helpful. And that was kind of how I opened the door. And then the next thing I did was. Hey, I've been following all your stuff. I have these specific three topics or questions that I want to talk to you about. Would you be open to jumping on a Zoom with me? And that's very different than, hey, can we just get on a Zoom to talk about nothing? He knows exactly what I want to talk about. And he's seeing that I'm hustling and trying to, and trying to do things. And I'm trying really hard to grow my audience on Twitter and meet cool people. And I think the combination of doing cool stuff on your own with specificity when you ask for something is the secret, the secret formula that I've used. It doesn't work every time though. There's been plenty of times where I'll DM someone and they won't respond. I don't think anyone should take that personally because their time is important, right? But I still think putting yourself out there is a net positive in the long term. Right, yeah. And you've also interviewed Peter Boyce and Emmett Shear and Michael Sabil and all these are huge names in their own specific niche. So how did you reach out to them for the year series, for the year speaker series? Yeah. So, okay. So I love this because cold emails are something that I've thought a lot about. So when I think about writing a cold email, there's a few, there's a formula to it. I think simple spacing and then specific. So I think there's three S's. So simple meaning there shouldn't be three paragraphs. If you can't get your point across in three or four lines, you're too long. So keep it really simple spacing. It's kind of like writing a tweet. When you write a tweet, if it's just a block of text with no spacing and no bullet points or any sort of formatting to make it easy to read, they're less likely to read it. I think about the same thing with emails. Make it easy to scan. So space the lines out. And the last thing is specific. Just to the point I mentioned about the DMs and when I'm trying to set up a phone call with someone, super specific of what I would talk about with Emmett Shear, what I would talk about with Peter Boyce. Hey, Emmett, I, you know, this be simple with, okay, this is exactly what we're doing. This is exactly what the ask is. I would love to speak about how you train, how you pivoted from Justin TV to Twitch, 
you know, any lessons you learned selling to Amazon or what you're working with, you know, as a part of a larger corporate entity and stuff like that, that's very specific to him. Not that I could just send to any single guest I'm asking for. So simple spacing and specific, I would say. Yeah. And this reminds me of another framework that you have with building and maintaining relationships, which is ASS. It's a weird name. (laughs) Yeah. So can you go through that? I love this one. Yeah. So ASS has a funny acronym, but attract, search and strengthen. So when I think about it, I think the key to having a successful career and kind of anything you want to do is building a world-class network. Meaning you not just grabbing business cards and collecting business cards and saying, I have a bunch of LinkedIn connections. That's not what I'm talking about. It's really finding people with similar interests, doing interesting things, and that you can help in the future and that can help you in the future. So I think it's very about providing value to each other. But the the system that I built, if I said, okay, it's really important to have a network, how can I reverse engineer that to do something weekly that gets me closer and closer to that goal of building an awesome network? So the system I have is attract, search, and strengthen. First, attract. So I'm writing two tweet threads per week to attract interesting people to me. That's very important because a lot of people think networking is just sending a cold email out to someone, which is part of it. But you want to have cool people finding you based on your ideas. For example, you found me based on a tweet thread I wrote, right? You never know who's going to be reading it. And there's plenty of interesting DMs or conversations or people you can meet based on putting out based on putting out your work into the world. So that can be having a podcast you have, having an email newsletter, tweeting. Those are all examples of attraction. The second part is search. So for me, that's sending one DM or email to someone new per week that I've, that I've never met before. So I'll just have a weekly spreadsheet where I'll have, okay, did I send my one DM or email to that person? Yes or no? And then the second part of search of that pillar is one Zoom with someone new per week. So I want to just have a 20 to 30 minute chat with someone new that I've never talked to. And the last part is strengthen. How can I strengthen my existing relationships that I already have? So that's one DM or email with someone that I've already talked to, and then one Zoom with someone I've already talked to. Uh, So that's kind of the breakdown. Right. You've sent a DM to somebody who is, say, super famous, super busy. You've got them on a call. You had a very interesting thread about, I think it was like, I've done a hundred Zooms with people and here are my best takeaways. And I love the part where you said, be very specific on this question of when they ask, how are you? What are you doing these days? And so, yeah, can you break down that thread and the lessons that you have learned through those Zoom calls? Totally. Yeah. So the exact thread for people. So it's like, I've had a hundred plus phone calls or Zooms with strangers. The problem is these calls can be awkward AF. Here are five steps to avoid screwing it up. So I'd say the first thing is preparation. It's kind of what I talked about when you send that cold email to Emma Cheer to get him on your podcast. If you bear, if you Googled Emma Cheer once and sent the email, that's not enough. You need to know his background, what happened with Twitch. They pivoted, right? All these different things. So before the call, you need to research the person's background, whether it be college, their career path, anything they create. And then I'll read through their LinkedIn, Twitter, personal website, whatever, to give myself a sense of exactly what they do and what they're interested in. It just shows you generally care, genuinely care. So that's like before the call. And then so, okay, then your next goal is to break the ice. When you talk to someone new, you're trying to show this person as quickly as possible that you are, quote, cool and also smart. And I don't mean cool like you went to high school parties and drank beer or something. Cool is I can have a conversation and not be so robotic and awkward around someone new. So the way I break the ice is what you said about the how's it going. So 
when some when you say, "Hey, Abby Shack, how's it going?" You might say, "Oh, I'm fine," like whatever, because it's a, a random stranger, right? For me, when someone asks that question to me, I'll give too much detail because what it does is it allows people to jump off and and grab onto something I said. So it could be like, "Hey, I'm in Florida on vacation. It's been really fun here. We played golf on this par three course. I hit the ball in the water, but I like playing. Whatever." And then whoever I'm talking to might be like. Oh, really? What course did you play at? Uh, oh, that's so funny. I play golf. I'm not very good either, whatever. And that gets you talking about things outside of just like business and tech related. And it breaks the ice. So that's the next part. The next thing is you want to give them context. So it's your job is to give them your story. They probably jumped onto the Zoom call and have no idea who you are. They're like, who is this Chris kid? I, I don't know who he is. So basically just give them a two minute background. Hey, I'm Chris. I'm from Philly. I went to an all guys high school. I'm a senior at Yale now. Give them your story and what you're working on. So it just gives them the context and they'll probably share the same thing. And then the last thing is just have come prepared with a bunch of topics and questions you want to talk about. Be genuinely curious about things you want to know. This is very different than just having a question to ask a question. Be like, I was researching about this. I was super curious how you did this. That's a example of like, hey, I really care about this. The last thing is just be cognizant of their time. If it's 29 minutes out of a 30 minute call, you need to be like, hey, happy to jump off. I know we're getting right to 30 minutes. They might say, yeah, we can go longer. And that's a great sign. Or they might be busy. So make sure you give them the out. But I'd say that's kind of the the formula that I've used. And so I guess my next question would be, you have, say, somebody as busy as Peter Boyce on the call with whom you have done the interview. Now, how do you strengthen the relationship with somebody as extremely busy as Peter? Yeah, it's actually a good one. So I've thought a lot about this because just the context for everyone, I run a, a fireside chats for a group called the Yale Entrepreneurial Society, and we call it the Eli Speaker Series, and we can probably link to it in the show notes or something. But I've had 10 interviews with people like Michael Seibel and Peter Boyce and Emmett Shear and Kevin Ryan and all these big entrepreneurs. And what I do to stay in touch with them is just recently I would send them an email follow-up and be like, hey, Peter, it's been you know four months since I interviewed you. Crazy how time flies. Here's an update on my end of what I've been doing. A few bullet points. I've been doing this on Twitter, been doing, you know, meeting these cool people. We've had these interviewees recently and just giving them an update. It's super low touch because they don't even have to respond if they don't want to, or they can just read it and be like, oh, cool. It's good to hear from Chris. But that, that's what I do in terms of staying in touch with people that are higher profile like him. Actually, there's a quick story related to that. So I interviewed Kevin Ryan for our last speaker guest. He's like a legend. They call him like the godfather of New York City tech. Awesome guy, founded MongoDB, Business Insider, and all these companies. And when he, it came to networking, I asked him a similar question. I was like, kind of, what do you think about building a network? And the lesson he said was, it's more about strengthening your existing network than finding all these new connections. Meaning... Stick with people that you've worked with or people that you've talked to and make sure you're constantly checking in with them every six months or so. So not constant, but every six months or so with here's an update. So I took that idea from him. And I think that's important because if you don't talk to someone for two years and then when you need something, you're like, hey, just out of the blue, haven't talked to you in two years. That's kind of ridiculous. And it's really, you don't have that relationship with them anymore. But if you're constantly you know, updating them and, and curious to hear about what's going on with them, it becomes more of a natural relationship. Yeah. And I guess when we were talking last time, you, I asked you the lessons that you had learned from Peter Boyce. And obviously, he's a legend in 
networking and i think it was in super organizers this newsletter where there was this long piece on how he structures his networks and then he had a huge air table document and i guess you said that you had built your own system around networking with people so could you share that with us yeah totally so i think i mentioned previously the attract search and strengthen thing but that was completely based off of peter's system where he had like an air table where he would tag people by category by city and all those different things so i took that and i definitely made a much simpler version of it but the way i actually execute on it is i have an excel spreadsheet where i have you know columns and at the top of the columns are attract search and strengthen and then beneath attract search and strengthen i'll have two tweet threads and then it'll be and then it'll be like all the way on the left there'll be like the week that it's associated with so may, the week of may 3rd and then next to it next to the two tweet threads it'll say one dm or email and then it'll be like one zoom and then one dm or email for strengthen and then one zoom and then i'll just have the people that i talk to beneath that for the week and then i'll highlight them green when i've actually done it so that just keeps me on track weekly and i'll look at that a few times a week to just be like hey do i have i scheduled something with someone yet and i think the key to the whole system and like the one takeaway people should take from this is that make it really simple like note that i don't have five people per week that i need to zoom with that would be too much right you don't want to make it so when you're busy you're not going to actually do it you want to make it easy wins and that's i think the key to building any habit because anyone can do 20 minute zoom per week one of them anyone can send one dm some weeks i do a lot more some weeks i do you know just the one but i think just having the simplicity of it makes it a lot more achievable and you are a systems guy in a lot of ways because you have all these cool systems that you have built around everything that you do so let's take a segue into that so can you talk about some of the systems that you have built around your reading habit or again you talked about the networking thing but are there any more systems that you have built around things that you do yeah so i i can talk about the reading habit thing so when i march 2020 and covid hit and i was just like you know nothing to do and i was kind of stuck at home like everyone else was I read Atomic Habits by James Clear. And that book, which is, you know, super popular now, a lot of people have heard of it, that seriously changed my life in the way I think about building habits and then to an certain extent building systems. So from that book, I decided, okay, my one little habit that I want to build is reading every single day. And when you think about that, it's kind of daunting to a certain extent. Oh my god, you're going to read every day no matter what. the way in which i set it up it made it really easy to achieve just like the networking system so i would say okay i'm going to read one page at a minimum per day right before bed so i paired that habit with right before i go to sleep i'm reading and i bought it and i bought a kindle and i have this whole thing kind of set up there but when it's one page you can do that in 30 seconds some days i would read 20 pages and i'm happy to if you're interested we can go more into like you know the five things as i learned from that which is another thread that I Yeah, we should do that. Let's do it. Okay, so the first so just the context I wrote a tweet thread about this. I've like, you know, I've written or read for 365 days. Here's what I learned about building any sort of habit. So you can apply this to habit building in general. And I say the first pillar of those five is simpler is better. So the more complex your habit is, the greater chance it will be to fail. Like complex I like made a joke when I wrote this. I was like waking up at 4 4:01 a.m. you're splashing water on your face you're meditating for 18 minutes then you're in a 3 minute cold shower then you get out and drink your cup of tea for 4 minutes like 
okay, those are great, but that's ridiculous to have this amount of things. And it creates all this complexity. So think about it. When you're having a bad day, you stub your toe. When you wake up, you're probably not even going to do it because you're like, this is too much. It's too much of a lift. So for me, I said, I'm going to keep it really simple. Read at least one page of a book per day. The next thing is friction. So friction is this thing that I think people can use to create these sort of incentives to like literally do anything you want. So when you want to do less of something, you should add friction to it. When you want to do more of something, you remove friction. Here's an example. For reading, I bought a Kindle, like I mentioned earlier. Why? Because buying, buying and ordering new books is this big sort of friction, meaning you have to go. You re- so you say you finish reading a book, you order one on Amazon, it comes in, you have to figure out what book you're going to order, then you order it, it comes in in a day or two, which is awesome. But then it's like, okay, I got to figure out what I'm getting, whatever. Think about that. If you're on your next book, you're going to miss a few days and then you're out of the habit, right? So when it's on a Kindle, every book is one click away and I can just have 20 books in my library that I can go to at any time. The third thing, make it easy. This is similar to the first principle about the simplicity, but the example I gave here is if you want to meditate a lot, you should not start with one hour per day. I know Naval says 60 minutes is great, But for almost everyone, 60 minutes, you're going to do it for two days. And then you're going to just completely stop because it's too difficult. Instead, just start with one minute. It's kind of like starting with one page of the book. And then when you get there, you can just work up to it after you've built the habit. The next thing is making boredom difficult. So when you do something consistently, and this is a principle I really feel strongly about, when you do anything consistently for a while, it's easy to get bored of it. For example, you're training for the Olympics for three straight years in swimming every day for four hours, you're going to get so bored of swimming. You're going to see that pool bottom and be like done with it. Same thing happens when you're trying to read for a year straight every single day. So what I would have is 20 different books that I could rotate depending on my mood. I'd have a fiction book, nonfiction book, whatever. And then depending on what I was feeling, I could just rotate the book. So I think it makes boredom difficult. The last thing is probably the most important one. So you want to keep the streak alive. So when for reading, I, I kept this habit calendar So basically I Googled 2020 calendar for a whole year. And then I printed that out and there was an X for each day, a box for each day. And I would check that off every single day that I read. So the goal here is you want to become addicted to keeping a streak alive. I did 10 days in a row. If it's the 11th day and I don't feel like reading, look, you already have a 10 day streak. It's one page. Just do it. When you keep having that mindset, you become addicted to checking that box off and you create this feedback loop that's super positive. Uh, so that's the, that's the thing. Yeah. In the last call, you said it's hacking your psychology. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's a Seibel thing. So when I interviewed Michael Seibel, he said, you need to find ways to hack your psychology. And this is this is a way to do it. Yeah. And, and I love the rotation of books part because I literally have this book I was reading. I started this a few weeks back, which is about the Royal Society and how it has being there for 350 years, Newton was a part of it. Almost every single innovation has happened out of the fellows in that Royal Society. And so I was reading about that because as an institution, it's really marvelous that for 350 years, it has been relevant. And I think it's like 300 something pages. And I'm in the last two chapters. And in the past week, I haven't picked it up because I've been reading it for so long and I'm bored. <laughs> and I, and yeah. I literally have two or three other books that I would love to start and I haven't started them because I'm like, oh, I have to complete that one. And <laughs> there's such a good strategy of rotating books from the very beginning. 
A hundred percent. I think the worst thing ever is trying to finish a book when you don't like it just to finish the book, because that's not like, if you're just doing it to like, say, Oh, I finished this book. You're not going to get the learning associated with it. And it's going to be just increased friction to you wanting to read when you're bored. You're not going to want to read the book. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a good one to implement. Right. Yeah. And one thought comes to mind is we are talking about systems and consistency. And I tweeted this today because you rarely hear Tim Ferriss saying, I haven't thought about this thing in this way. And I was listening to this interview of Tim Urban, who writes the very famous Wait But Why uh, website mm-hmm. or blog or whatever you call it. And so he was talking about consistency. And I was saying that I write three hours a day, five days a week. And some of the best writers in the world, they are writing, say, 15 hours a week. And then somebody who is not writing and somebody who's complaining, oh, I don't have time to write. My writing is not good. That person is doing zero hours a week. And so in a span of a week out of the 110, 12 hours, the best writers are writing 15. The other one is doing zero. Six sevenths of both of these writers time, they are literally doing the same things, which is they are not writing. So it's the one seventh part of being consistent with writing that makes all the difference. I love that idea. I think that's super, that's super powerful. And it should be like, it's kind of a motivating factor to all the rest of us who, you know, wait, but why with Tim Urban's incredibly successful blog and He's only writing 15 hours a week. But I think the reason why you can say that too is those 15 hours are super dialed in and focused and no distractions, put the phone away, silence all your notifications and just write. And I think finding blocks like that, like even if it's an hour a day, finding a block where you can just write or just do your creative task with no distraction is super powerful. So I try to find those whenever I can. Yeah, I think Dickie Bush calls it the sacred hour of the day. And so what is your sacred of the day, by the way? So typically my schedule, at least for the for now, is I'll wake up and then I'll, I'll, I'll work out. So I'll lift for an hour, hour and a half, and then I'll have classes. And typically I can find a sacred hour between like 7 to like 9 p.m. So that's typically what I've been doing when I'd be writing my tweet threads. But I'm not as structured as Dickie. Dickie is like, you know, 5 to 7 a.m. He has like a perfect structure. I'm definitely not not there right now. But I do try to lock out an hour or two to do creative work. Yeah, Dickie's super structured. I was reading one of the essays written by his mom. And she was saying, I, I think she was like, I need to make a call. And he was, he told her, oh, I have a five minute block between 7 to 8 p.m. It's like <laughs> every single minute is booked. He's incredible. Yeah. He, I mean, that's the reason why he's had so much success too, right? He, he built, you know, a huge audience on Twitter and then chip 30. So he's, uh, he's got a method to the madness, which is great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the tweets that I think a lot of people pushed back on it was, and I think this was your lessons from Ryan, which was like first principles thinking is stupid for most people and really useful for some. So I would like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So this one was, this was not Kevin Ryan. This was from, the quote was actually from Michael Seibel. Uh, so he, yeah. So it was from the tweet thread. I've interviewed these five founders of Blend Dog Startups. Here's what I learned. So the context for this one is a lot of people think, you know, first principles thinking, it's a really good way to think, right? Whenever you approach something that everyone assumes is correct, ask why that's correct and keep asking why. And then you kind of get to the root or the building blocks of this idea and then from those building blocks, you can build back up and, and create something new. That's a basic premise behind first principles. I think Michael said this because a lot of people try to have this very first principles approach when it'd be better if they just took action, tried stuff and figured it out on the fly. 
So I think, you know, for him, it hasn't been as successful. People swear by them and think they're awesome. And I think there is a kind of a certain validity to what he's saying of take action, just take action, try stuff. It doesn't have to be perfectly thought out, which I think we talked about a little bit with the Nick Huber sweaty startup idea. But yeah, I think, you know, different people have had success different ways. Right. Yeah. I I have been sort of paralyzed by some sort of metric as well, not in terms of the first principle, but it's like people always talk about reading books. And so when I'm doing something, and this was maybe two years back, so say I'm starting a social media page or I'm thinking about some idea and I'm like, if I read this book, then I'll know everything that I'll need to work on this idea. And then you complete that one. And then it's like, oh my God, what if I don't read this book? I need the wisdom from this book to work on that. And it would have been so much better if I would have just acted on that. So I guess it makes so much sense from that context where you sort of get attached to so many principles that it's you're just paralyzed by them. Totally. I, I think there is, there's an over, like for myself too, like I have all these frameworks, I'm seeing all these like cool things on Twitter. And at the end of the day, they're great to frame things and allow you to think clear and have systems to execute on long-term goals. They're all great, but sometimes you just need to try something, see if it doesn't work, try something again, iterate on that. So I think there is, especially for people that are more into systems and frameworks and thinking, sometimes action is the best course. But so that's definitely a balancing act. But I definitely feel that with the book stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you have given us a masterclass on Twitter and networking. And I guess it would be incomplete if we didn't talk about your thread on Twitter's blocks. Yeah, we could talk about this one. Yeah, so there's it's kind of a play on with writer's block. Everyone knows what writer's block is, right? It's like you're sit down to write. You have no idea what to write about. You're like, oh, shoot, what should I do? Like my paper's due tomorrow or my blog post is due tomorrow or my deadline, whatever. I took that and I, I think about in the context of Twitter. So I called it Twitter's block. And I basically said, okay, there's four different ways that you can never run out of Twitter ideas again. And I've done this through trial and error. There's been many a times where I've had Twitter's block and you know, I, I have no idea what to write about. And it's, it happens to everyone. I think these four formulas are a good kind of first step. So my first one is find your Twitter inspirations. So those are kind of the people you'll be studying to inspire your next ideas. So this is, as I mentioned before, it's it's Julian, it's James Clear, it's Greg Eisenberg, who's another good one, Sean, my boss, Alex Garcia is another great one, Trung, Sahil Bloom, Dickey. These are people that you look up to and say, okay, I want to... I'm super interested in their ideas. And these are things where they can provide inspiration for my own. So every time you come across one of their great tweets, and I stole this from Nick Huber and Sweaty Startup, you write it down, you're, you like put it in your own you know, Notion doc, you think about it, you make it better with your perspective, and then you rewrite it in a different way saying, okay, here's you know, Pomp's five, five principles for this. I could say, oh, what are five principles that I think about, about a different topic? So it's taking like a format or an idea and just using that as inspiration to shift to your own ideas. So you're not copying something. You're just giving yourself more inspiration from great ideas and you're thinking critically about certain tweets instead of just mindlessly scrolling. The next one, I stole this from Ali Abdal, the famous YouTuber. It's be a coal miner. Content coal mine is like a blog, a newsletter, a YouTube channel, subreddit, podcast that has great ideas. And you quote mine for these ideas by looking at all these places. And I do this, you know, same thing with people that love, like, you know, if I, I'm, I'm into business and tech, right? 
So I'll say, okay, here are a bunch of blogs that I could look at. David Perel's blog, Tim Ferriss's blog, James Clear's blog, Nat Eliason is another interesting one. Wait, but why? And then I'll be like, okay, here are all these blogs. Let me go read their old articles from 2014, 2015, 2016. That can provide inspiration for tweet ideas. Um, so it's just finding finding good inputs so you can create good outputs. Then I list a bunch of podcasts and newsletters, which are also interesting as well. My First Million, obviously, with Sean, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's old Tim Ferriss episodes. Dickie's Digest is great from Dickie Bush and a few other ones. The third step is the Twitter advanced search. No one talks about this and no one uses it, but basically go to Google Twitter advanced search, type in the handle of one of your favorite people to follow. So it could be from your inspirations, then filter by a set number of likes. So it could be 300, 500, 1,000, and then just scroll through them and say, oh my God, okay, these are the tweets that got the most engagement. How are these ideas something that I could do similarly or have a different take on? So you can do that sort of remixing process that I talked about. So an example that I can give, so you can actually see it in per, like tactically, is I found this tweet from Pomp from 2018 that said, the smartest people I know, one, admit they know very little, two, constantly seek more information, three, encourage intellectual debate, four, have strong opinions loosely held, five, are comfortable being wrong. Okay, so we get the point of like, he's doing a list of smart people stuff. Yeah. So what I did is I said, okay, wow, these lists are great. And then, you know, I have my own principles and ideas. So I said, you know, the most successful people, one, have almost too much self-belief to learn to think about independently. And I get all the way to number nine. I say tweet memes. So I made a little humorous twist on something. Uh, and that was kind of, I took those ideas from Sam Altman's blog, How to Be Successful. So it's basically something that's impacted my thinking, added a little twist of humor, and I used a format that people can already enjoy. And they've already said, I like this format. Yeah, so that's that's the third step. The fourth one is become an internet archaeologist. So everyone likes early videos from Steve Jobs and Elon and, and Naval and Bezos or whatever. So just scour YouTube for those, cut them up and post them. You can go to another website called firstversions.com, which is like the first Google office ever, the first logo, whatever. And it's just interesting things that you can share with your audience. So those are the four steps. Wow, I love this. And I think Sam Altman's article on how to be successful, that is the one article that you have bookmarked since the past two years. And so can you talk about that and what is the impact that has had in your life? Yeah, so this kind of got me, when I first was exposed to startups and tech and business stuff in general, I found Paul Graham uh, and Sam Altman, the founders of Y Combinator. I found their essays and I was like, oh, these guys are super smart awesome thinkers that I can learn from. So I read How to Be Successful by Sam Allman, and he gave like 13 thoughts about how to achieve outlier success. And I read this every few months or on a certain cadence where I have it bookmarked and I'll check it out. And it's just a good reminder to of what is possible when you do these things. Because look, he's applied these principles, other people have as well, and it's led to success. But I think we don't need to go through every single one, but I think one that is a good kind of idea from this conversation that is kind of sums up what I've talked about a lot is compound yourself. So when I talk about compounding, when you talk about compounding, a lot of people say, okay, put your money in a 401k in 30 years, it'll be a lot bigger because over time, the interest you're going to make and whatever compounds and makes a large amount. Compounding yourself is basically doing that, but doing it for your own learning curve, doing it for your own network we talked about. 
the power of compounding when you have a network where you're meeting a new person every week. So he's saying you need to focus on that as well as just compounding your own 401k because people get bogged down by linear opportunities and they kind of think about things in a small opportunity. But the comparative advantage is thinking very long term and saying, what projects can I choose now that will pay off in the next 10 to 20 years? Uh, and I think that's you know a good way to think about life. Amazing. And thank you so much for sharing so much wisdom in this interview. And if people listen to this and they wanted to reach out to you or read more about you, what would be the best place to explore more of your awesome threats or ideas? Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I felt like we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, so you could, you could follow me on Twitter at Chris Halad, H-L-A-D. And then uh, I also have a newsletter where I share some stuff related to, it's mostly my tweet threads, the links in the bio on Twitter. Um, so you can click that and sign up. But yeah, this was, this was awesome. Happy to you know, get in touch with anyone interested.